This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad yourself. I'm doing great. Um, I did my expense report from the uh, Identiverse conference today. I was going through my ARIA resort uh, detailed bill, and I had a charge on it for the mini bar, Uh a bottle of vodka, which I didn't take, by the way, $75. Now, it's good and bad, right? Because I'm thinking, first off, like, I didn't even take a bottle of vodka. And second off, like, why was it $75? Because probably wasn't like any special vodka. Um, but the good part is one phone call later, they took it right off. So, um, yeah, good and bad. Well, Aria had that. This is the first time I'd seen it. And I guess that's I probably shouldn't be shocked. But if you go to a hotel in Vegas, the refrigerators are fully stocked. And they have most of them have like this pressure sensitive plate. So it's very much like Indiana Jones trying to like pull the idol off <laughs> without, <laughs> without setting it off. Um, this, the, the, the unique thing that I noticed at Aria, which I hadn't seen before, was in addition to it being fully stocked, they also charged you if you put anything in. So not only was it looking for weight disappearing, it was looking for weight being added to it, which I mean, I get it, it's Vegas. Yeah, everything is nickel and dimed and is expensive. But I thought that was kind of kind of crappy. I did see that same um, plate. What it did not tell you was what the charge would be if you put something in it. Yeah, there will be a service charge. Maybe it's by weight. How much <laughs> do you put in there? Bag of ice? <laughs> yeah, a bag of ice will cost you $1,000 a day or something. A bargain. <laughs> anyway, I, I also had on there, and this was a legitimate charge for a can of Coke, 12-ounce can, $14.75. I did not have the nerve to expense that one. I just said, I'm, I'm going to eat that one. But man, that's brutal. 1475 that is, is the most expensive can of soda I've ever had. Was it worth it at the no. time? No. It, you, you, you immediately regretted it as soon as you took it off the pressure sensitive plate. No, because then... I didn't know until I got the bill. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. yeah, so this is the, actually the first episode you and I are recording together kind of live after Identiverse, which was an awesome conference. I think I had such a good time and definitely want to shout out to all the people who came up and said hello. Uh, for whatever reason, you must be more approachable because pe- I think it sounded like more people came up to you to say hello. But I did have a couple, which was great. So um, it was very appreciative to kind of walk in the halls and have people kind of randomly uh, stop in and, and say, you know, hello and listen to the show. So if you took the time, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for all that. It was very cool. We had a good time. Well, I hung out with uh, Jason, the Jason Stratham impersonator, as much as possible. I mean, he was like the star of the show walking around. It's the new booth babe concept, which is, you know, get somebody who's an impersonator in Vegas to walk around with and people, you know, magically come up and talk to you. I guess I, I, I'm not sure I, I quite got that one, but if you had a good time, then it's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got another conference coming up that we're going to be. I think that's the next thing we're hitting is the Authenticate Conference, which is in October 16th to the 18th. It's in Carlsbad, California. Where is Carlsbad? It's just north of San Diego. Uh, I know this because I have uh, family on my wife's side who actually lives there. So kind of convenient for that. Um, that's put on by the Fight Alliance, our friends over there. And I think our 
current reigning champion for maybe show appearance now will be Andrew Shikiar, who's the executive director over there. So looking forward yeah. to getting him on the show and talking about that. We're not expecting to have Julie Smith on the show anytime soon. Unfortunately, we miss Julie. We hope her retirement is going well, but it looks like an opportunity for Andrew to breeze by her. Yep. And uh, we are, you know, do you want to break the news about kind of the podcast on the, the conference? Sure, sure. So we are the official podcast of that conference. Um, and because of that, we've got a killer discount code, the best percent off that's available anywhere. I feel confident in saying that. And they kind of guaranteed that. <laughs> we hope that ID. stays true. <laughs> we hope that stays true, right? We're recording in advance, so... Uh, hopefully I'm not proven wrong by the time this comes out. It's IDAC 15 podcast and the uh, website is authenticatecon.com slash event slash authenticate dash 2023. Or I think you can just go to authenticatecon.com and kind of navigate your way there. But again, that, that discount code is IDAC 15 podcast and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, for sure. So good way to show support for the show is to use discount codes and we get them kind of shows that actually people listen to this crap that we put out every week. <laughs> so hopefully, <laughs> uh, you know, people use that. We'll see people down there. I think we're going to maybe do a little bit more with the conference uh, this year. Uh, so we've been kind of talking with the team over there. So stay tuned for that. But that's pretty cool to be the official podcast and have a discount code that we can give to our listeners. So IDAC 15 podcast authenticate con con.com. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see people October 16th to the 18th in Carlsbad and uh, enjoying the sunny weather. Yeah, can't wait. And so we've got a good topic for today. We're going to talk about identity orchestration. Do you want to go ahead and introduce our guests for today? Yeah, let's bring in our new friend. His name is Eric Olden. He's the co-founder and CEO at Strata Identity. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, Looking thanks for taking the time. Yeah, so we're going to have a conversation here about uh, identity orchestration, and you're going to be our expert in our Sherpa, kind of guide us through what it is and what we should be thinking about from an identity perspective around that. But before we do that, it's first time on the show. We'd like to understand a little bit about your background. How did you get into identity? Uh, we were kind of doing some research, and it sounds like you've been around for a long time <laughs> in the space. So is it something that you chose, or did it choose you? I think it's somewhere in between. My journey in identity started when I was in college in my junior year at UC Berkeley. And it was 1995 and Netscape had just gone public. The, the web was coming out. Everyone was excited about it, but um, nobody knew how to secure it. And so we, my best friend and I from high school, uh, naively thought, well, why don't we just build software to solve that problem? And not even thinking at the time, it would turn into what it wound up uh, becoming. And next thing you know, two guys in the dorm room became a 300 person company. And we had a just a fun ride uh, through 2001. And um, that company was Securant. We had a, a product called ClearTrust. And we were in the web access management market. And in those days, we didn't talk about identity as the market. It was uh, web security or web application access and web single sign-on and things of that type. Um, I was the CTO and co-founder, and I ran all of engineering and product. And um, along the way, the 
opportunity showed up to build a standard. And I was one of the four early co-authors of SAML. And that was a lot of fun because uh, we collaborated with our, our fierce rival uh, across the way, uh, the team from Integrity. And uh, we built something that I think has is, is really surpassed my expectations early on. And I'm so proud of uh, what it's become. After we were acquired by RSA in 2001, I took some time off, got into venture capital, moved from Silicon Valley to Colorado. And then when the non-compete wore off, I started my second company, Simplified, in 2006. And we were the first identity as a service company and solving the problem of identity as it moved to SaaS applications and identities had to be in the cloud. And uh, coincidentally, that company also acquired by RSA. And then I spent time with um, Oracle running the identity and security division there. And that was a lot of fun uh, moving from uh, startups that were started in a garage to uh, one of the biggest software companies in the world and saw from the other side of the table what the large enterprise was looking for. And the challenge was, hey, we're moving to the cloud, but we're not just going to one cloud, we're going to multiple clouds. And how do we do identity there? And um, at the time, Oracle had made the strategic decision to just focus on the Oracle cloud. And I saw that as an opportunity to uh, get out, set out again on my own and started Strata with uh, my co-founders. And we really wanted to solve the problem for identity when you have multiple clouds and you're trying to make it all work together. And um, that became identity orchestration. So if I'm stuck in an elevator, not that I would be stuck, but let's just use that as, an, as the, the phrase. What does Strata do? Like, what would you tell somebody? So we solve the problem of the identity when you have more than one place. And by that, it's typically we have a private cloud, all of the on-premises identity, and we've got cloud-based identity, and we're using different clouds to run our applications. So when you have more than one, then you need a system to make them work together. And so kind of a way to think about it is if the world in the past had really been about uh, one or so, a few number of really big identity providers, that the future is multiple IDPs. And now you have to think about how you work in a world where things are defined by and instead of or. And so in that world, how you make Microsoft and Okta work well together, how you make your cloud and your on-premises work in a hybrid configuration, how you make those work together. So that's really the middleware that we built. We call it identity orchestration uh, because we looked at how computing had evolved in uh, virtualization. And in many ways, you can look at what Kubernetes is doing for workloads, allowing those to run anywhere and in multiple places. And we thought, well, how about approaching identity with orchestration? And that became um, the, really the, the hypothesis of the company initially. And then um, we built the first version of Mavericks, which is the name of our software platform in 2019. 
And we brought that to market. And at the time, no one really had an idea that there was a problem or that you could solve the problem. And so for the first couple of years, we were uh, really focused on explaining, hey, this can work. You can create an abstraction layer and make all of these things work together. And um, slowly but surely, people started to try it. And now um, it's become a, a thing. So I was at the Identiverse conference that you mentioned, and uh, it, was, it was interesting to see how many uh, customers are talking about orchestration and are asking about it. And that's happened very quickly. And so that, in a nutshell, is what Strata is. Sometimes I tell people we're building the VMware of identity. And um, to do for identity what virtualization did for compute, and that's to create this abstraction layer and make everything work together. That's a pretty bold statement to say that. <laughs> um, we had Jerry Gable on a while back, and we kind of talked a little bit about sort of like this identity fabric and the, this multi-cloud. And the way I kind of look at it is, is some, this sort of like Rosetta Stone that sits in between because it seems like every cl major cloud provider uh, as a service does it a different way. Microsoft has a certain way to provision accounts, blah, blah, blah. AWS does the same thing. Uh, GCP, you name it. There isn't any consistency across that. Um, Amazon has recently put out, I think it's called Cedar, which is like an open source kind of policy framework for that kind of thing. Um, speaking of, we should probably get Sarah back on the line because I think she's actually the head of product for, <laughs> for that. Um, but um, I guess I see the need to have something that glues all this together because in my day job as an IAM consultant, I go in and I talk with companies and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we are primarily on Microsoft Azure, for example. We're an Office 365 shop and blah, blah, blah. And then the question everybody comes is, okay, so everything is running in Azure? Oh, well, we have some AWS over here and we have some GCP over here. And I think a lot of companies struggle to some degree with this multi-cloud management from the identity perspective because even though they might pick one as sort of like their home base, an app or a developer or the line of business or some feature or function is only available in the other ones and they really want to take advantage of it. And the reality is you really do have to be able to manage across the different clouds. Do you find that that uh, accurate, I guess, in, in your runnings around? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Jerry and I work together and we talk about this all the time. And I think the, the lens that he's looking at the world through is policy. And how do you make policy consistent in a lot of different areas? And uh, we wrote a, a spec, a standard called Identity QL or IDQL is what we call it, um, as a way to create that generic representation of policy that allow you to make policy consistent both across the east and west axis, meaning different clouds all have the same policy from Amazon to Azure to Google, for instance, as well as north and south through the stack so that you can have consistency on policy from your app to your data to your network and so forth. And that was very ambitious, um, is a very ambitious thing because we're, we're right in the thick of it right now. Um, we've got the uh, reference implementation called Hexa available for uh, download and con contribution in the CNCF. And we're really proud of how the industry is coalescing behind this problem to solve it for customers, which is, hey, let's make things interoperable. And 
So absolutely, uh, policy is a big part of it. And that happens typically at runtime, or I'm sorry, that happens at outside of runtime. So out of band, more in the administrative or the control plane. The other side of orchestration is the runtime orchestration. And this refers to perhaps the multiple steps that you want to have a user go through as they uh, access applications and data. And the orchestration would be, for instance, the flow of a user from authenticating at a certain IDP, then up authenticating for multi-factor if they're going to do a certain kind of transaction, and then perhaps pulling attributes from multiple places so that you can uh, feed them into an authorization system like an OPA or a plain ID. And then once that response comes back, then allow or deny access to a resource. So that's just one example of a user flow and orchestration refers to the runtime experience that you would link those different steps together. And sometimes people call them user journeys, but in the end, it's, it's that runtime experience for uh, identity orchestration that complements the control plane or the admin time uh, consistency that you get with policy orchestration. So the two of those together, I think are really solving uh, both sides of the, of the problem today. Yeah. Okay. So I've been sitting here bottling up all these questions and then you had to go and say that, which is, I'm going to just ask my first question based on that, because that's what you hit here, right? It's like this term orchestration in a vacuum. People say, okay, well, what is orchestration, right? It can mean anything. It's like that user journey piece is much different than what Jeff referenced, which is kind of this orchestration of the Rosetta Stone. So it's really like two totally different use cases that it's solving. And in fact, I think there's like another use case that was implied by based on what you're talking about earlier, which was really this kind of middleware layer of abstraction concept. Um, is it that basically the, the tool itself inherently just does those things and therefore it's really you you take this this magic item <laughs> that we call abstraction it has this orchestration workflow capability and it can do user journeys it can do rosetta stone it can do um layer of abstraction to integrate your legacy with your modern is that what is that what we're talking about here yeah. So if you break, if you unpack the whole, like the, the terminology orchestration, and we start with that and we'll come back to identity and policy, but just the notion of orchestration, uh, we certainly didn't invent that concept that have been deployed. I think, um, a lot of people are familiar with the idea of Terraform and where you're orchestrating the infrastructure, say you want to provision a new server to run a database, and there may be seven steps involved in that from storage to your networking, to your compute, to installing, configuring things and scripting it. So people have been using automation and scripting vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Terraform and things of that type uh, for quite some time. And the value that you get from that is automation and consistency. 
and scale. So you can point it at something and have it done quickly and do it at a lot of different times. So you don't have to have people doing it. So that automation and all of that is really where uh, orchestration uh, starts. The next two pieces of the identity component and the policy component touch on the integration. Where do you apply that orchestration? In the case of identity orchestration, we apply that to uh, runtime for the applications that people are accessing and the data that those applications are built upon. So the third kind of concept to incorporate here is an identity fabric. So if you think about your abstraction layer, right, to break that out, what does that mean in practice? Think about all of the different IDPs that you have. And if you are running a private cloud, you may have old stuff like Active Directory or Oracle or uh, the old CA Sideminder. A lot of big enterprise have those things and they, they are living with them. They have been living with them for a long time. And then you have other IDPs that run in the cloud. That could be the Octas of the world, the Pings of the world, the um, Azure ADs of the world. So an identity fabric creates an abstraction layer that integrates all of these disparate APIs and allows you, instead of trying to learn each one of those different IDPs, APIs, and the model of working with things, it, you let the, the abstraction layer cover it. And so you don't have to worry about doing any of that. You integrate it all into this fabric, and then you can then run those different flows through those different steps that tie into the different IDPs in your identity fabric. When we get into the policy side of orchestration, what we're talking about are the rules and the configurations of the IDPs themselves. And when you think about applying that policy orchestration, what we're talking about is the policies, for instance, within Azure AD that govern who can do what within applications that run on Azure. And you may have those rules set up typically in the, you know, RBAC, so the role-based access control or attribute-based access control and groups and things of that type, which have been around forever. But if you're running some of your apps on Azure, and now you also have other apps that are running in, let's say, AWS, now you've got to think about how to work with Cognito, which is Amazon's version of an IDP. And so that system as well uses roles and groups and attributes and Cedar is a way, a new way for them to represent authorization. Um, but all of that said, you've got these two different clouds that have two different imperative uh, policy systems that aren't intuitively obvious, right? You need to understand how the whole data model of Azure and the whole data model of Cognito is set up so that you can understand how to configure those rules in those groups. And that means it gets really complicated. So what an abstract policy abstraction does, it says, look, we those things were built for a reason the way that they are. So we're not gonna change those uh, systems, but we're going to create an abstraction layer that will normalize a policy that will do the same thing, whether it's run in Azure or run in Amazon. And that abstraction of the policy 
is represented in this generic Rosetta format called IDQL. And so you can think about translating it from native Azure policy into generic IDQL, and then translating it from IDQL back into, or not back into, into Amazon policy. So now you've got one policy in two different instantiations, but the software takes care of it. So you don't have to worry about learning the API or understanding how all of it works. You just focus on that uh, generic neutral declarative model that's represented in IDQL. So there's a lot of layers okay. in here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel it. So I, if I didn't have headphones on, you see the steam coming out of my ears, right? All the gears are grinding and I'm, I kind of feel like we're cracking the code here, right? So there's these three major scenarios and I, I think your architecture is based on, you have these nodes that are out in your environment and they're essentially proxying traffic of some sort, but it's this IDQL and they do the translation, but essentially you're going through these proxies somehow. Is it the person is traversing through the proxies or that's just the means by which the policies get to the end location to get translated? Yeah, so it's a combination of both. And I, I call out that the runtime in the administrative are two different uh, branches of orchestration. And they really don't cross, but they're both doing automation of policy in the case of policy orchestration and runtime user experience in the case of identity orchestration. So in the case of the software, how you implement it, if you're trying to get your policies, the rules and the configuration consistent, then you would use a tool called Hexa, which is the open source implementation of IDQL. And if you, or, or if you're trying to do the runtime of the user and how that user is onboarded or how they gain access to applications and data at runtime, that's what we call identity orchestration. And in that case, you're focused on the runtime, right? At what point do people, when they log in to try and get to an application, what happens at that point? In both cases, they have proxy-based software. In the case of identity orchestration, it's a runtime proxy. In the case of the policy orchestration, it's a different proxy that calls all the APIs and it'll do things in more of a batch mode. So runtime is identity orchestration admin is policy orchestration so yeah policy orchestration you've had identity orchestration and then you talked about a third type which to me was kind of like doesn't look like the others which is orchestration of these user journeys which in my mind is something like registering for an identity or some kind of user journey like that and is that right and then what is that called well that example that you're describing would fit into the category of runtime and that would okay. be identity orchestration. Okay. Okay. So there's the two it's policy and the identity orchestration. That's right. Okay. No, I think that that really helps. And why are those two pieces combined into one offering? Why wouldn't they be, two totally different 
offerings is it that the tooling that makes those things happen is just common and you get all this benefit from just conceptually putting laying down these kind of bits that it's only like a 10% add-on to be able to do identity versus you know adding the policy onto it well in our our world they are two different things they are one is open source hexa you can get that from the cloud native computing foundation the cncf and we're a contributor to it we help run the project but we don't make any money. We're going to commercialize IDQL and Hexa. That's our investment into the community. So organizations can do things in a more seamless, less lock-in kind of world. When you talk about the commercial side, what software that Strata sells called Mavericks, that is entirely on identity orchestration, and that's solving the runtime problem. So they are two different uh, pieces. And if you kind of Trace it back to how identity developed since the late 90s through to, through to today. Um, even in the early days, there were companies solving different problems. And going back to the late 90s, uh, my company, Securant, we focused on runtime, web access management, people getting into the web apps and doing single sign-on. There were other, and we competed with Nitegrity. They had SiteMinder. Oblix became Oracle and IBM was in the game as well. But we were all in this web access management uh, bucket. And that, I think, corresponds to the runtime example that I'm describing. At the same time, there were other software vendors that at the time we called it provisioning. And these were companies like Access 360, Business Layers. And what they were doing were, and now SailPoint, and Savian are more modern versions of that. And they're solving a, a problem that's identity related, but it's not at the runtime side. And what they're doing is saying, hey, should somebody have an account and who's in that account and how do we generate reports to show the auditors that we have a, a game plan in place and we, and we enforce it. So what we kind of fast forward 25 years into where we are today, those same two problems continue to exist, the runtime and the admin side. So what we've done is say, let's apply this concept of orchestration to both of those worlds. Strata as a software company isn't trying to commercialize the open source policy side. We're focused on the runtime, but there are really two sides of that one coin because you've got that account. And when that account is created and provisioned, and when that account is being activated and used, you need to think about both sides of that coin. So that's why there's a dichotomy. And hence the reason that we put the effort we did is to make it hopefully solve the two big problems that people have been struggling with for the last 25 years. The, you know, I, I told you I was like bottling up questions as you're going. Some of them were like tongue in cheek concepts and uh, or jokes. Um, because I was thinking you and I were in college at the same time. And I often think, why didn't I just start a website where people could post their pictures and other people could comment on them? Because <laughs> that seems like it would have been pretty easy to do and obviously made a ton of money for somebody who called it Facebook. Um, the other thing I was thinking was just, you know, it seems to me like you had mentioned you and Jerry are working on these standards. So you're, 
part CEO and part standards writer because you you're you're in the guts with this thing, huh? Yeah, I I mean I love more than anything creating software, and I love even today I I'm very hands on keyboard and probably unlike, and maybe it's because I started my career as a CTO, not as a a business person or CEO. Um, and over time, it I never goes away, right? And when I see things, I instantly try and figure out how do we make this work in software and how would we represent these concepts in code and um, I'm not a developer. I don't write code, but I design software and I love the the nuance and the detail. The standards part of it, though, I think was something that was very accidental. In the very beginning, um, <clears throat> when we were doing the precursor work to SAML, uh, we were very much thinking we're going to commercialize this. And then somebody, a real uh influential person in my career, uh, Bob Blakely. At the time he was at IBM and he said, look, you and the team at Netegrity, you're both trying to commercialize the same thing. Why don't you make it a standard? And then that way people can uh, you know, use it more broadly. And I thought, well, okay, that makes sense, but um, maybe we can save the world from the whole Betamax and VHS battle that happened or the Blu-ray HD DVD kind of saga. So that going back to the early 2000 timeframe, I'll give credit to uh, Bob because he really kind of pointed me in a different direction saying, make this a standard. So fast forward, coming back to the community, I'm thinking, how can we help move the industry forward? Standards have a really big impact and it makes the world so much more interoperable. That would be a good thing. I happen to have a lot of experience going from nothing to a standard. So I brought Jerry in and I said, look, let's build this standard. And I had kind of started the initial spec and, you know, here we are today now, a couple of years later, and it's moving a lot faster than what we saw with SAML for a lot of technical reasons, but it's just been on fast forward and it's really exciting, but I think I'll always look at ways to solve problems in software. And that's the part that gets me excited every day. Yeah. One of the thoughts I was having as you were talking was a conversation you and I had when we first met, which was around my timeline and identity. And oftentimes I feel like I'm an old head in identity, right? I got in around 2003 and I was telling you the story of like, okay, my first project was implementing Oplix for web access management and and it's like, yeah, like it was like right around that time when they were bought by Oracle and you were running Oracle's identity management. <laughs> like, okay, well, <laughs> I was like, I remember not long before that, I was like, what is this IAM stuff? And now I've got a podcast about it. But um, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's just kind of funny. But um, the other thing I was thinking about was, okay, you talked about SAML and being one of the co-writers of that standard and I thought, okay, I remember SAML coming out and SAML evolving. And then you'd hear about organizations that were, you know, employing software like Ping to provide single sign-on using SAML. But I also remember around that time frame thinking like, that'll never work for us. <laughs> it's not complicated enough for us, right? We've got all these 
applications that are very complex and we need filters and plugins for our web servers. That's how we'll do the authentication. That's how we'll gate traffic into the apps. And obviously that's been blown away, but some of that infrastructure is still out there. I mean, we've, Jeff and I run into clients who still have Lotus Domino servers. Not very often, but it happens. Your Lotus Domino, you've got your old classic ASP applications, which, you know, classic. <laughs> it's like right before the, it switches to legacy, it's classic, then legacy, then we got to get rid of this. Um, but, okay, the point that I'm going toward is like everybody's now kind of adopted like, okay, we need a modern authentication system. It's not the old web access management. But you've got some applications, maybe hundreds of applications that are running on old identity management platforms. And to me, it's like you can't wait until the engineering cycle to just flush all those applications out. You've got to find a way to integrate them into the whole. And then you got even more complex scenarios where maybe through mergers and acquisitions, you've got multiple you know, modern IDPs, and you've got all these different pockets of applications. And what is an IAM practitioner to do? Is that one of the problems that you guys are solving? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the domino reference. I'll, I'll, I'll see you one domino reference and raise you one cold fusion reference. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, we're helping one of, our, one of our yeah. uh, big customers. Now nobody sleeps tonight. <laughs> <laughs> modernize and they have hundreds of these cold fusion apps and i don't think that that product's been supported in any meaningful way from a new feature standpoint for a long time uh, a lot of times people use these old things because it's like plumbing and once it's working and you put your drywall up and you you put it out of the way you don't want to think about it you want to instead think about what you're going to do in the room that you just built change the furniture is a lot easier than changing the plumbing. So people only very infrequently try to change their infrastructure. And that's led to a huge amount of technical debt because you multiply the number of, of companies that have been around for any meaningful amount of time, like five, 10, 20 or more years, they've created all of this cruft and all this technical debt. And the historical way, if you wanted to upgrade your identity provider, you'd have to rewrite your application to consume identity from a modern IDP. And to get to the nuts and bolts of it, that talks about the last mile integration between the IDP and the app. And the session is the heart of where this all goes down. And the old way we used to do it was as consistently as we could, but using the tools that we had, we'd use cookies and we use these HTTP headers as a way to, to cross that transom into the application. Well, all the modern identity systems use things like SAML or OpenID Connect. And so now how do you get the OIDC to work with cookies? Because they're, they're just kind of like getting a gas powered car to work with an electrical a Tesla motor, like these things were never built with the intention to work together. So the modernization is one of the most common patterns that people use orchestration for, because you can swap out the legacy IDP with a modern one 
and do it in a way that you don't have to rewrite your application. So allows you to upgrade, get rid of that technical debt. And instead of spending six or months or more per application, you can do it in minutes because software is doing all of the automation. So that's a, a very common use case. And it's, it's good for everybody to upgrade without paying your technical debt and without diverting all your innovation to the past. Focus on doing something interesting versus fixing an architectural decision from 12 years ago. So it feels like orchestration could be very strategic in terms of like enterprise architecture. Here's how we're going to solve these big problems, but it could also be a point solution to solve a specific problem. So I wonder when people pick up the phone or stop by your booth and want to buy your product, is it usually for the point solution or is it the EA who wants a big picture Rosetta Stone or, you know, a, a, a Swiss Army knife? It, it varies. It depends on the kind of company that the person's coming from. If they are uh, responsible for, let's say, doing an acquisition and they know that they're going to be acquiring a lot of organizations because that's their business model. We work a lot of companies that are in that space uh, that have that kind of world. Then for their, for their purposes, they want the infrastructure so that they can very easily snap in and work with a newly acquired company. Or conversely, if they're going to spin a company out to find a way to uh, cleave the IDP, so the people and the users and identities that go with the spun out company and all the customers, they can handle that identity addition and division, basically. Um, those tend to be thinking about it very strategically when you have a tactical problem, like we have people who say, look, I'm just trying to roll out passwordless, but I have all these unmanageable applications. I just want this one use case. I have this, uh, I want to roll out hyper or some other MFA, but I don't have the source code to all these applications, or I don't have the team or I don't have the time. How do we get this MFA out to all these applications. Well, in that case, it's very tactical. You just want to use orchestration to scale your passwordless rollout. And that's a very easy, very common way for people to start. And once they realize, wow, that was easy. What else can I do? Then they start looking at the other aspects of identity and figure out how they can extend their use of orchestration, extend their identity fabric to more IDPs and extend it to more applications. Generally tends to be the way that we see people start. I know that we've been talking about a whole lot of AI recently <laughs> on this show, and it seems like kind of all over everyone you're talking to. And I think this is an area where I think is really ripe for innovation because the, the hill that I'm going to die on right now is the definition of AI in my mind has changed within the last uh, nine months or so since the advent of these large language models and those sorts of things. So how do you see AI impacting things like orchestration and maybe even potentially things like HEXA and IDQ, IDQL where, you know, there's this translation need because people don't, you know, maybe trying to figure out, right, how to streamline managing different types of cloud environments. Is AI something that's going to help with that? Can I, will I be able to go into some sort of admin console and says, hey, create Eric 
in this and in these platforms and it just kind of does it? Does IDQL or Hexa maybe serve as the background to kind of help with the translation? How do you see AI impacting this sort of area of, of identity orchestration? Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about AI. I'm a big believer in it. Uh, one of my companies in the past was really focused on machine learning, and we were using it for um, you know just data driven optimization. So I saw, and this is 2013, 2014. So very early uh, models that um, proved to me that there's something here. So. When you talk about AI, similar to what we're seeing with identity, right? Well, that's a big tent. And there's a lot of different parts within that world of AI that are going to be relevant. And all of this is going to get overhyped. And then soon people will be saying, like, now with 50% more AI. And it's like it's some kind of additive. I think that's kind of... Well, that one must be better. I mean, it's got <laughs> more AI. 16 pounds more of AI. Um, yeah, it... so abstracting away the the hype and you say hey well what's what's fundamentally working here um where within that ai world i think machine learning is proven and that is a, a way to uh use big data sets to see patterns and do something about that in an automated way the hype recently about large language models and the things that you see with chat gpt uh those are great and uh, someone was just describing a chat GPT as a very prolific author. They can write things, but it's not actually making decisions, right? And in that sense, um, I think people have the right expectations of what you can get with uh, large language models and generative AI in general. If you have the right expectations of what you can get, it's going to be very powerful. If it's going to go into science fiction, which probably will be here before we know it, and you have the general purpose artificial intelligence, like what they portray in one of the best underrated movies, in my opinion, is Her. You know, the- I the, love Her. Wasn't that great? <laughs> the movie, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell people that all the time. So I mm -hmm. think that's like really cool. Will it happen? I think it will. It's only 2023. You had five years, you had 10 years, and I think those large language models and the generative API or AI is going to be much more prolific than even it is today. Um, but just to apply it to identity, I think you have a, the last thing would be how you can build a co-pilot and the notion of having a co-pilot that is able to manage the data and work with the data that your identity system uh, can work with, as well as do things on your behalf. So like, and we were experimenting with some of these things at Oracle and it was very rudimentary. It was a chat bot, but this is years ago. And the chat bot would do a password reset. And that at the time was like, wow, that's crazy. Now I think people would be like, oh yeah, I was expecting it would be a, a bot on the other end of this chat. So I think all of that, I do think AI in very specific ways is going to be very profoundly impactful on identity and application security. I think if we do it right, then we'll be able to show demonstrable value and rely on it. And I think the areas that I'm most excited about are co-pilots, the ability to do um, large language model and languages, by the way, can be programming languages. 
So therefore, if you can get those to talk with all the APIs, then yes, I do see a future where you can have Hexa go out and tell Hexa through a chat, go integrate with all of these things and make my policies work across all these systems. Then you're combining the generative AI along with these standards. And that I think is going to be the science instead of the science fiction. And I think that's that's not far in the future. We're working on it at Strata today. So I think it'll be interesting as we bring it to market, uh, how this is all going to come together. But I'm, I'm super excited about it. All right. So you've piqued my curiosity. When, when you guys are ready, I'd love to have you back on and explain kind of how you're leveraging this type of thing. Uh, a couple thoughts there. Uh, first, the movie Her. I love that movie. I think it's great. Came out and I had to look it up here. 2013. Joaquin Phoenix, Scarlett Johansson. And I remember when I watched it, I was like, yeah, I can totally see this. This is what's going to happen. And it was sort of like, you know, Siri, I think, had kind of just started at that point. Maybe Google Assistant, those sorts of things. But you could clearly see sort of the trajectory, right, of what the personal digital assistant type thing looked like. So if you haven't seen the movie Her, H-E-R, definitely worth checking out. Uh, The other thing that you mentioned was chatbots. And this is actually something that I experimented with I uh, must have been six or seven years now uh, ago at this point. Now, I'm not a coder, but I think Microsoft is the one I was using. They released like this bot framework, basically. And I remember putting together a little mini proof of concept of an access request kind of workflow using a chatbot. This would have probably been like 2015 or 16. And the idea was, you know, you have this chatbot that runs in your enterprise environment. And based on keywords that you would tell it, it would say, oh, it sounds like you are asking for Active Directory. And the struggle that I had at the time was, well, nobody calls everything the same thing. It's Active Directory, it's AD. And you start, I started ending up with this list of, well, how many different permutations on the name of a system <laughs> are there? And what if I miss one? Now, all of a sudden, the thing doesn't know what you're talking about. So I think this is an area where I, I'm curious to see if chatbots you know, start to leverage that. I mean, we're kind of already seeing it with things like ChatGPT and, and uh, the Bing and, and Google Bard and stuff like that. But um, it just, it was a blast of the past when you kind of mentioned that. Um, no, so I'm I, curious by the way, by the way, I can attest to Jeff actually doing this. It was not a made up story. I was just test on me. So every, <laughs> every day it was like, Hey, I made an improvement to the chat bot. Why don't you go in there and try something? But I, was, you know, those misspellings, I think is when you see chat bots a lot now, it's comes up with like four options. You can either click on the option or type a number or letter to indicate what you want to do. And if you want to go off script, you're taking a big chance. You're probably going to get nothing back. Yep. Um, okay. So that was the AI at the center portion of the show as we or I think we're going to have to start calling it because uh, we keep getting into this. Um, Eric, you've been really great with your time. I want to make sure you can kind of get on with your, your evening uh, here. Uh, I know that there was some discussion before in the show about you're a surfer. And so I want you to be our surfing correspondent and maybe uh, I've never been surfing. So how do I surf? Teach me to surf. Like what is the thing that I should be doing other than, okay, grab a board. Is there a specific board? Should I be going to a specific like beginner's beach? Do I do balance things at home? I mean, I'm at a, I'm a standing desk right now and I'm one of those balance boards right now, but I have a feeling if you throw me in the ocean, I am not staying upright. <laughs> Help me out here. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm honored to, uh, be your, your surfing correspondent. I, uh, hope I can live up to, uh, expectations. Um, I think to answer your question on what's the best way to learn to surf, 
probably find a place that has really warm water. So you can spend a lot of time trying practice. It's not something that you, most people pick up very quickly because uh, there's a whole lot that goes into it. So um, if you do a place, I think one of the best places to start of all things is uh, Waikiki. And believe it or not, that's a, it's actually a man-made beach. That whole area was um, manufactured. And why that's nice is the water's really warm and there's no coral reef and there's no rocks that you can get hurt on. And you can be out there from dawn to dusk and there's no sharks that are going to mess with you. So um, I, I would say find a place like that that's warm. If you can't make it to Waikiki, uh, Costa Rica is great and you know probably places in um, the Northeast, believe it or not, like uh, surfing up in New York. I like a place called Montauk. And the water gets warm there in the in the summers. I grew up surfing in in uh, Santa Cruz and San Francisco, and you have to have a wetsuit and think about sharks more than you want to. So you have to really want it if you're going to start in cold water with with those kind of conditions. Um, but I would say, yeah, get a big board. Some of these foam boards are really nice to just get the basics and um, go to surf school. There's a lot of really good surf instructors that. Um, will get you on the basics. And so much of it has to do with uh, getting up off the prone position. So if you are into it, if you've ever done burpees, I hate them, but they're a really good way if you're not near the ocean <laughs> is to get that, that muscle memory of popping up off the board and getting into a stance where your feet are onto you. So that's it to recap, warm water, go where there's no rocks, there's no sharks and go to a school and then, uh, practice at the gym. Yeah. So if anyone has ever seen my waistline, they know I don't do burpees. Jim, on the other hand, definitely does burpees. Um, does the type of board matter when you're first starting out? You mentioned a foam board and I guess I'm just thinking some sort of polycarbonate or wood board or something like that, but foam sounds a heck of a lot lighter. And maybe it reminds me a little bit of like a boogie board. I used to do that when I was a kid and that was a lot of fun, but is it the same kind of concept, just longer, like a shape board or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's different? exactly it. So take a boogie board and make it a little firmer and make it maybe eight, nine feet long. And the reason I say foam is the alternative is a fiberglass or an epoxy board, which is harder. You can break those things. Like if you hit them on a rock, you're going to be. And yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yourself for sure. Um, but yeah, the foam boards, there's uh, one called a wave storm that they sell at Costco in Hawaii, which is, I just bought my daughter her first surfboard two years ago, and that's what we got her. And um, yeah, so it's just longer the board, the more buoyant it is and allow you to uh, float more. And you'll see people on, on short boards, like five foot, six foot boards and the ones that you see on magazines and people that that's like air quotes surfing. The one I'm talking about is starting on longboarding. So a longboard and a shortboard, those are kind of two different sports, but it's much easier to learn on longboard than a shortboard. You don't have to have the same kind of experience or balance. And um, yeah, you go to places like I'm describing, you're not going to have any problems with the locals. You're just there to have a good time and um, don't give up. That's the other thing I find so often people, if they're, they're too hard on themselves and they say, Oh, if I can't go out in one day and learn to surf, I'll, I'll never figure it out. 
I've been surfing since I was 13 and that's a long, long time. And I now live away from the ocean. So I only infrequently get out to go surfing. So, um, it's very humbling when you are like, Hey, I haven't surfed in like six months and you paddle out and you're like, Oh my God, I'm exhausted. Well, it's because you know, you don't use it, you lose it. So I just encourage people just give themselves time, say, Hey, I'll learn it. Maybe if I can just ride a wave on my stomach, that's great for day one. And day two, if I can get onto my knees, that's a huge accomplishment. And if you're standing up and you're surfing within a couple of days, you're doing amazing. So don't give up. Don't be hard on yourself. So 13 years old, that was like, what, probably what, your first identity company, seems like? <laughs> <laughs> Jim, uh, have you ever been surfing? Uh, I've tried it unsuccessfully. I've tried skiing unsuccessfully. I just, I don't have balance. But let me give one pro tip for anybody who's going to try it. Don't wear your hearing aids into the <laughs> ocean. <laughs> it's a losing proposition. I actually did that this weekend. Lost a hearing aid. It's very expensive to have it replaced. Somewhere in the Atlantic. It ruined ocean, my day. You say there's no bad day at the beach. Try losing a, you know, half of a fifty-four hundred dollar hearing aid set. There's a, such thing as a bad day at the beach. Oof. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for giving us another I, downer. The, to end the on lighter here. note, no matter what, I can I can bring it down to the level that I want it to be. Remember, <laughs> I was fighting for the let's end the show talking about shark attacks. Yeah. I mean, I tried to spin into a positive, but hey, just when you think, you know, we got away, Jimmy the shark comes up and uh, pulls us back into the depths. So, <laughs> yes. All right. Let's go ahead and leave it there for this week. Eric, thank you so much for your time. I actually learned quite a bit here and hopefully others did too, kind of the definition and kind of the difference between policy and orchestration and sort of runtime and, and other things like that. So I'll people go back and listen. I think we'll probably have to have you back. Definitely when you guys are ready to share what you're working on the AI side, come back and let's figure out. Cause I think that's something I'm really interested in is how identity companies are going to leverage sort of this era of AI, AI that we're moving into. Um, we'll have your LinkedIn profile in our show notes for people to reach out if they've got questions. You have an interesting one, as I'm noticing here, uh, LinkedIn.com slash bought, not sold. What does that mean? Yeah. I think I know what it means, but yeah. tell me. Well, it means that I think when you th have people who are trying to acquire technology, whatever it is, the day of the hardcore sales rep calling you and just saying, hey, let's get on that discovery call and do this thing. And they're pushing and pushing and pushing. That's selling. And I think with the way the world works today, people don't want to be sold to. They want to buy something. And so you flip the whole conversation 180 degrees, and then you allow people to find what they're looking for and you give them content and you make them informed. And if you treat them right by giving them what they need to make their own decision, then they're going to buy it. So I say technology, the future identity should be bought, not sold. I like it. And that's exactly what I was thinking. So uh, uh, great minds think alike, I guess. Um, we'll also have a link also to Strata, uh, strata.io, S-T-R-A-T-A dot I-O uh, on uh, our show notes. So people can kind of check out what you guys are doing, especially the Mavericks platform. Sounds very cool. Um, I've seen, you know, some things around it. So it's definitely uh, something people should be checking out. Hey, Jeff, uh, one more question yeah. before you go any further. So I just thought of this. Strata, how did you come up with that name? 
So strata in the clouds, the highest and the outermost atmosphere is the stratosphere. All other clouds exist inside of that stratosphere. And the notion of a strata are layers. And so you think about the orchestration layer at the very top, all the clouds and all the IDPs fit inside of that. And that's why we manage everything from the top, allow you to have whatever cloud that you want. And that became strata, the layers of identity. I like it. I always love hearing clever stories around different product names and, and company names, stuff like that. So that's a cool one, too. Um, all right. We're going to go leave it this week. Don't forget about our discount code for Authenticate, IDAC1515 podcast. That's 15% off our registration fees. We have a bunch of links in our show notes for people to check it out as well. Uh, we're on the web, IDACpodcast.com, Twitter at IDACpodcast, Mastodon at IGAC podcast at infosec.exchange. And uh, Jim and I are always willing to connect on LinkedIn. Um, I actually got a real nice email uh, from someone. I shared it with Jim and um, around trust in HR, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I've got that saved away. I think we're going to probably tackle that in the next couple episodes. So Marcus, if you're listening, I know you probably had a bunch to catch up on, but um, we're going to hit that one uh, in the next few episodes here. So um, yeah, with that, we'll go ahead and leave it for this week. Thanks, Jim, for your time. Thanks, Eric, for your time. And we'll talk with everyone in the next one. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the Center.